how how you work you look back uh, Joanne in your in your presentation you kind of did a, a throwback Thursday looking at history how important is history when we write about the future would you say you know I actually think it comes from a similar impulse I mean I'm not a historian and I wouldn't pretend that I am my book lurking as well this history because I was alive when it was happening and I'm quite old now. So at this point, like, uh, I, I have like a record of about 30 years of the internet. Um, but there is that sense of the choices that you make to zoom in on, the, the themes, what you're prioritizing, the point of view. These come into play the same way. And of course there is that relationship of seeing the trends that have developed over time and, and developing uh, expectations that they will continue or perhaps there's something else that threatens this particular aspect that we've taken for granted for so long. Adrian, would you like to add on to something there? Um, hmm. I mean, you know, when I first got into technology, I, I was just like not interested at all about the his, about history, actually. Like I, and I feel like when I was at school, we just never really learned anything about, other than World War II and how the UK won World War II. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> um, and so I, th I don't think that, that schools kind of need to go and teach everything. Like whenever people go and say, schools should teach more about X, Y, Z. I'm like, there's only so many hours in a day. You can't expect schools to teach everything. But I think it's good to be curious, and um, you know, I I just love reading about how people used to do things, and I think it tells you more about the future than than people just pontificating about the metaverse. Right. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Hi, I'm Marcus uh, from Germany. Um, one question to Adrian. Uh, so two questions basically. On the one hand. Uh, what inspired you like to fill the list over three years? And the second one, did you have to cross off one item because it became true? Um, that's a good question. So what inspired me, I, I did it, I, um, I launched the book on Kickstarter in 2011, so, and then people backed it, so then I had to go and write the book. I mean, honestly, like I, it's kind of like a pre-commitment strategy where it's like, well, I've got to do it now. Um, I, I really like writing, um, and it, it let me try out lots of different things. And I think I didn't realize that I was signing up to write 100 st short stories rather than one book, though. I probably would have done it differently now because it's just really hard. <laughs> um, are there things that I crossed off? Actually, no, not really. <laughs> like, I... That, so there's a second edition of the book that came out two years ago, and that came out seven years after the first edition. And I kind of thought, well, I'm going to have to go and cross off the first 10 years of objects. And it turns out I was a little bit too optimistic about things that I thought were going to happen. And so I kept most of those in. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, technology actually hasn't gone as fast as I thought it would, which is maybe saying something. Thank you. Question over there. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Vaughn, and I think about futures that we don't know about very much yet, right? Like unknown futures. So I have a question for both of you, actually. Um, you know, the futures fund uh, instance that Adrian you mentioned—they're trying to get people to write stories that are hopeful in 
the attempt, I assume, to shape the future so it's more like that. Now, what if you were strategically trying to change the way people think about what the future can be with an intentional path in mind? Like, what would you suggest as a strategy for helping people think about futures that make the futures that actually result from that more good in a way that actually does make sense rather than is just what Sam Bankman-Fried wants? <laughs> That's a, that's a great question, and I, I think one thing I would point out is that what the Future Fund has done is, is something that there's a, the, there is a history of, of organizations who have sponsored actual science fiction writers, and you know, writers, if you've written a science fiction novel, you, you might need a little bit of a f side income as well. So <laughs> yeah, some of them are taking contracts from DARPA and the like, and there are objectives that they have to meet. Now, in certain circumstances, these writers are sometimes the, you know, the people who can walk into an organization and tell them to their face, like, this is a problem. We're in the business of writing about problems with technology in the future. But in a lot of cases, they, the organization itself has the objectives. So these, you know, scenarios or, or whatever you want to call them, some of them do resemble short stories. Some of them can be very good fiction, but that that backing, the per, that there is an objective already. I, I I'm uneasy with this tension because I feel like because I, I did I wrote a science fiction novel, and. To, for anyone to look at me, this book won't be out for a while, sorry, but like, I, eventually when it does, I, I would hate for anyone to think that like, my objective here is to do X and solve Y, because that's not where I come to, even with my nonfiction, that's not how I, I operate as a writer. That creative spirit is something very different. And, and yes, I think a lot of, I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson would be a very great example, someone who clearly is on the side of climate justice and writing in ways that are, you know, galvanizing to the public. But I, I, I do think I'm uneasy with the current relationships that are in place right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would sort of continue on that. And I'd say that I, I think that it's, you can't really think of fiction as a sort of instrumental tool for, like, I, I just don't think it ever really works that well. You know, you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, his new book, uh, The Ministry of the Future, like, for the future is, like, really popular about climate change. But he's basically been writing the same novel about climate change for, like, the last 30 years, right? And so he's not really doing that because I think he necessarily thinks this is going to change the world, because it, it actually didn't for, like, 30 years, <laughs> you know? Um, he just, but, he, you know, he's just so persistent he actually changed my mind, not about climate change, but like I was like 15 when I read the Red Mars trilogy. And I'm really lucky that I got my politics from that instead of like Ayn Rand, right? And so, and so like I, I just became like, yeah, of course, like socialism, that's great. And so <laughs> the other person who's been like really influential to me, I, like, I can't believe I only started reading Ursula Le Guin like last year. It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, the first time I tried to read her, I just bounced off it. And I read The Dispossessed, and I just thought, yeah, like, I just don't, I don't think I can, like, justify, like, bosses or billionaires or anything like that anymore. You know, it was so radicalizing. And I don't know that she thought, I'm going to write this book to, like, change the world. I'm not sure. But, like, I think that she did it anyway because 
she wrote this really interesting story. I will say about the dispossessed and about Ursula Le Guin is that she, she, she kind of does this thing where she, she tries to create like a utopia in the hardest possible situation. And so I feel like a lot of people, a lot of science fiction writers kind of cheat by like lining up everything so it happens perfectly. And she's like, okay, but how could we have a utopia where like there's actually no resources whatsoever and everyone thinks it sucks, you know, but we're trying to change that. And so I guess, yeah, all of that is to say, I, I feel the same kind of urge. Like I, I was thinking I, sh I should go write another like novel. I, you know, I've got the itch again. And I was like, oh, I, maybe I should do something about billionaires or something. And then it, it's best if you try and do that thing where you don't think about it and, and you try and put out as, your mind as much as possible. And I think that's really hard to do, but you get better results. Thank you. And now we have time for our last question. Uh, hey, I'm Dan. Uh, thanks, both of you. Uh, that was amazing. I, I really like this idea of retrospect. Like, organizations are really bad at post-mortems and so on. Everybody loves a good origin story. Uh, and that's, I think, so much science fiction is really optimistic. But, like, have you got any other good examples of sort of looking back at, you know, the other end of the Gartner hype cycle where things went, you know, sour? It, you know, it goes sort of up and then down and then up again. But like you said, you know, now we're experiencing the, the, the backlash and we're feeling down about the way social media turned out and like people did with a, with a space mission. Do you have any other good examples of that? Because I really like it, but we need a more, more years, right, to, to get that perspective. I mean, I, I, I feel uneasy about pinning anything down, but uh, I, I think any technology, you're, you're going to see some hype cycles that are pretty, you know, pretty classic in terms of the messaging begins a little bit of restating the press releases, then the critics show up, figure out how it works, do what they can to um, point out the flaws in it. And I, I the, the reason I feel comfortable speaking about space and social media is because it's kind of out in the, the world right now. I would feel a little bit more uneasy about, uh, say, other 20th century technologies, uh, the railroads. Like, I just, I don't have a handle on that quite the same. But I, I think the history of cars is certainly an example that, well, I don't very, I don't know very well, but I'm walking around Malmo and that's, pretty pleasant and coming from Boston, which is maybe one of the world's worst cities because of cars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I, I, and I know that there's, you know, a history of people who would protest the highways and um, the, a lot of the underlying issues were about haves and haves nots and how certain highways cut through certain neighborhoods. So like, I really think that any innovation, you're probably going to find those critics that maybe they're not the first to speak because they're not delivering the, the, the press releases. But once they find it, I mean, this is what the public is pretty great at is, is discovering flaws. In it. Um. I, I brief, think, uh, brief, very, very brief. Okay, I'm going to give a very quick plug of my next book, which is about gamification. So I think video games are actually like I, you know, like I make video games, and they're they're basically the most popular form of entertainment like in the world now, especially amongst young people. And we've gone through, we sort of went through a kind of like 
hey, video games are cool and new and we like them. Then we went through like D&D and Doom are going to kill you. And now we're into, actually, games are amazing and they solve everything. And I'm like, actually, no, we're going to go down here again now. Like, they're, they're, like the, it, it's, there are some, as a game designer and as someone who plays a lot of games, there are some things which are problematic about games in terms of being addictive and being um, overly driven by monetization, you know, and, um, and, and like how they're able to kind of control their agency, especially when through gamification. So I think it's really difficult to, for anyone to, I mean, forget about games, just any kind of industry, it's difficult to criticize it because people just come out and say you're a hater. And so, you know, you kind of need a bit of thick skin and, and not care about what people think about you and not get invited to parties for a while, you know, to, to do that. So that's why you don't hear so much about it. Thank you, Adrian. And uh, for those who want to hear more uh, from Joanne and Adrian, make sure you grab them. We're going to serve snack, snacks outside. And don't miss our last talk for this year's conference called Endings and New Beginnings by author and food philosopher Magnus Nilsson. It will take place in the Ant Hill at 4 o'clock. Big hand to Adrian Hahn and Joanne McNeil. Yeah.